sort of stuff. It's basically a, a trend across um, America, Canada, uh, many parts of Europe, Australia, and even New Zealand, where where millions of employees are, are, are reconsidering and reevaluating their work, and, and many, many of them are voluntarily resigning from their jobs. Now, um, <coughs> experts are sort of uh, hung on some of the factors for this. It's, it seems to be quite complex. There's a, a number of layers to the reasons for this, but if you're an employer and you've been looking for workers, you'll know that the last probably year or two have been really hard, just even more harder than normal to try and get people um, to work that are you know appropriate and skilled. So anyway, I just want you to think about something for a minute. I want you to think back on your working career, maybe it's short, maybe it's long, and I want you to consider, think about the best job that you've ever had and the worst job that you've ever had. And when you've thought of the best job you've ever had and the worst job you've ever had, share that with someone beside you and see how they compare with their best and worst jobs. Okay? All right, okay. Okay, we'll start with the best jobs. Anybody had a job that they just really loved, like it was their best job that they ever did? Anybody want to share that? Yep. I was outdoor instructor for the Salvation Army in the forest. An outdoor instructor, so outdoors every day. Doing fun stuff. Cool, sounds good. Anybody else? Sue? I had my best job being a nurse. Wow. <laughs> well, you would certainly be able to give a good... There must be something, yep, that's right. Awesome. The new nurses, yep. Yep, awesome. Cool. Someone else? Okay, looking after kids. Wow. Wow, that's some pretty best jobs. <laughs> yeah, best and worst. Good point. Anybody else got any other best jobs? Although it's just been really awesome. Hey, being grandmother, that's good. Pay's probably not that great, but the hours, <laughs> yeah. Brent, what's it for you? Oh yeah, we love it. The best one in town, Brent. Okay, what about the worst jobs? Has anybody had some terrible jobs that they're happy to share in a nutshell? Well, I had to clean septic tanks. You had to clean septic tanks. I'm imagining that's not the funnest job. You know, Arnold, your attitude, you could make any job a great job. Anybody else had a terrible job? Two days in abattoir. That was your working career, was two days. Too much, too much blood and guts, eh? Awesome. Anybody else? Yeah. Oh. No one likes that, Dora. Well, I, it sounds like you guys have had some pretty good jobs. I um, figure that there's always someone who's got a worse job than you. So I've done some research. This job might not be that great. Pet food taster. <laughs> that is a legitimate job. This, this guy, <laughs> this is what he does. Uh, he's a proper pet food taster. There are some people who do that. Or this job, a train stuffer. I don't know the official name, but... 
basically they have to push as many people into the train as they can, shut the door and see you later around for the next round. Um, possibly similar to the septic tanks, a fatberg remover. So down in the big sewers of some of those very established cities, um, you might have seen them on TV, they're just m these massive things that just conglomerate and people have to put on the gear and go down and pull them out. So that would be gross. Uh, there is a person who gets paid by Dulux to watch paint dry. Now some of you might think that is the best job ever, but apparently it's quite scientific. Uh, he, he doesn't just sit there and watch it on the wall, he has all these x-rays and stuff, but that's his job, which I thought would be pretty bad, but I reckon this one would be the worst. <laughs> now this is a legitimate job, okay, deodorant tester. I don't know who would be worse, whether you're the, the test person or the subject. I don't know which would be, but anyway, whatever. So, okay, that's, that's, that's just something to make you appreciate tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock what you will be doing, because I'm pretty sure none of you will be doing this. Well, I hope none of you will be doing this. My next question to do with jobs is this. How many jobs have you had over your working career? Which, again, could be short or long, but has anybody had... Um, has anybody had three or more jobs in their working career? Okay, keep your hand up if you've had more than six. More than nine. More than 12. More than 12. Look at you young people. So uh, apparently millennials, that's people between, born between 1980 and 2000, they're going to have about 12 or maybe more jobs in their working career, which is a very like, high number of jobs to kind of get your head around, which is unusual actually because most of us sort of dropped out about six or more. Um, but for most of human history, people had very few job changes during their working career. They were sort of, it was one, maybe two options as they kind of progressed. And 2,000 years ago, Jesus was no different. He actually only had two jobs. For much of his working uh, life, he was a tradie. According to the historical record, according to the Bible, Mark chapter 6, Jesus was a blue-collar blue carpenter. Uh, in fact, the Greek word is actually craftsman, which is probably a little bit more diverse than what we think of as, as a carpenter, as a builder. So Jesus would have been building houses, he would have been making furniture out of wood, but he also had the potential to be working with stone, building fences uh, and walls, those sorts of things were included in the craftsman bracket. And then one day, Jesus changed jobs. And so we're going to read in the Bible, uh, in Luke chapter 4. If you've got one, you're welcome to turn there with me. Otherwise, I'll put it up on the screen. But this is what happened on that particular day. Luke chapter 4. This is what we read. When Jesus came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the scriptures. The scroll of Isaiah, was, uh, hand, the prophet, was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll, scroll and found the place where this was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. 
He rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down. Now, according to the historical record, it's the Sabbath. Jesus uh, heads to his local synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth. He stood up, he read the scroll from the prophet Isaiah, and then he sat down. Now, this is the big deal. Because sitting down is the traditional posture of the Jewish rabbis. And they were the respected scholars and teachers in ancient Israel. So by sitting down, Jesus announced that he had a new occupation. That he was changing roles from being a tradee to being a teacher. And that he was emphasizing this new change. In fact, he made a really bold claim to kind of back up what he had just done. This is what he said. Then he began to speak to them. The scriptures you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. And so look at how his listeners respond to this kind of big news. Everyone spoke well of him, and they were amazed by the gracious words that came from his lips. Now, if you're going to start a new career, that's a pretty good start, right? People are pretty happy with what you're just kind of announced. But then things sort of go sideways. Jesus, in the next part of the text, makes some some controversial comments about Jewish history. He claims that God loves non-Jewish people as much as Jewish people. And then this happens. When they heard this, the people in the synagogue were furious. Jumping up, they mobbed him and forced him to the edge of the hill on which the town was built. They intended to push him over the cliff, but he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. Now, I don't know about you, but that is not the best start to a new career. If that's how people are responding to, to your preaching, maybe you should reconsider this new career path that you're just heading down. But it didn't seem to put Jesus off. Like This explosive situation actually launches his career as a rabbi. And so just kind of by way of background, rabbis were the, the ancient equivalent of our, our professor. They were people who had a love for learning and practically applying that knowledge. And so the Jewish rabbis were highly respected. In ancient times, the Jewish people were known as the people of the book. So the Greeks, they had their academies. The Romans, they were known for their armies. The Egyptians, they were known for their pyramids. The Phoenicians, they were known for their ships. And the Jews were known for their book. And the book is really the Jewish scriptures. It's, it's the written record of their history and their relationship with God. And so by Jesus' time, these scrolls had been collected into what we would call now the Old Testament or the Jewish scriptures. And so the authority of the rabbis rested on their understanding of the Jewish scriptures. They were the people who knew the book. They, had, they spent years and years memorizing these scrolls and interpreting and understanding these scrolls. And to reinforce their authority, the rabbis would quote interpretations from other respected rabbis. Now this is not too dissimilar to, to what we still do today. If you've ever had to write a, an academic essay for university or, or a report or something for work, normally you're supposed to quote studies and other sources. And even too, in our court system, if a judge is going to make a ruling, they often base that on previous decisions in, in other courts, the precedent. But this is where Jesus was different. 
he did not quote other rabbis. He did not draw on the authority of other rabbis. In fact, some of his favorite phrases were things like, you have heard it said, and then he would give a teaching. And then he would say, but I say, and give something else. Or another of his favorite phrases was just straight up, I tell you the truth. In other words, what you've been told is wrong. I tell you the truth. So Jesus wasn't relying on the opinions and the perspectives of others. He essentially claimed to have a direct connection with God, which was hugely offensive to the religious leaders. This was this guy, Jesus, from their perspective, a former craftsman who had sidestepped academia and ignored the proper procedure. But for the common people, Jesus was an inspiration. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he taught with real authority, quite unlike their teachers of religious law. And perhaps one of the most inspiring teachers, teachings that Jesus presented was, was actually an extension on some ancient Jewish wisdom. This really shows the genius of Jesus. So every day, the Jewish people would recite two lines from an ancient scroll, the scroll of Deuteronomy. And these two lines were known as the Shema, which is, which is the Hebrew word for listen, which was the first word in these two lines. So let me share with you the Shema. Listen, or Shema, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. And just for some context, this was first written after the Jewish people had escaped from Egypt, around about 1,300 years before Jesus. And it was part of a, a much larger agreement that God had made with his people. So by Jesus' time, the Shema was really well known. Every devout Jewish man, woman, and child would repeat it twice a day. The first thing in the morning they did when they got up, and the last thing they did at night before they went to sleep. They would repeat the Shema. And they did this to remind themselves to love God with all their heart, all their soul, and all their strength. So on one occasion, Jesus was asked what the most important commandment was. What was the purpose of life? What was the, the thing that people should be doing? And he answers with the Shema. But according to his biographers, Jesus adds something to that. This is what we read. One of the teachers of religious law asked Jesus, of all the commandments, which is the most important? Jesus replied, the most important commandment is this, listen, O Israel, the Lord our God is the one and only Lord, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. Now, it's pretty subtle there. Did anybody see the addition that Jesus put in? Right, all your mind. Thanks, good. I'm glad my clue was very uh, obvious. It's an interesting addition because the question really is, how do you love God with your mind? I think maybe <clears throat> loving God with all your heart and soul is, is kind of easy. You know, we can have feelings of affection or appreciation for God's grace and goodness in our life. And, and maybe even <clears throat> loving God with all your strength is, is not too hard either. Maybe that's being fully present in worship or doing a really good job of our work, or, or just 
showing grace or generosity or, or mercy to another person when they don't deserve it. But, but your mind, how do you love God with all your mind? Well, I just have three tips which, if you're wanting to do this, you could press into um, just kind of some ideas. And the first one is, is simply this, to, to look. I think loving God with your mind starts by being curious about God. Because at some point, every person is confronted with the questions of existence, the big questions of existence, like, does God exist? Did someone create this world? And, and if so, what is he like? And perhaps you know people who have, have faced those questions, and they've immediately dismissed the existence of God. Certainly, in our secular world, God is commonly seen as, as a fabrication, as kind of made up, or as a means to some sort of social control. But the irony is that when people instantly dismiss the possibility of God, they are showing the same closed mind which they critique in people of faith. And so when people close themselves off to the possibility of God, they actually ignore the value of intellectual curiosity and, and the potential for learning new information. And both of those are, are fundamental principles in our modern world. In fact, curiosity and discovery of new information is really the foundation of modern science. So the majority of the forefathers of, of science were Christians and they conducted experiments and they made observations because they wanted to discover how God had designed this world to work. One of them was this guy, a guy called Johannes Kepler. He's a German a mathematician, astronomer, a philosopher. He was a, a key figure in the scientific revolution in the 17th century and he discovered, amongst other things, uh, some of our laws of planetary motion. He also made some improvements to the telescope. And he said this, Like a master builder, God has laid the foundations of the world according to law and order. God wanted us to recognize those laws by creating us after his image so we could share in his own thought. And those discoveries have actually continued for the last 400 years. In fact, modern science is continually discovering new knowledge. So did you know, last year, scientists discovered the biggest comet in space. It is, uh, is 1,000 times larger than a regular comet. Do you want to see a picture of how big it is? This is it here. In the circle, I know it doesn't look like much, but that's a comet named the Bernardelli-Bernstein Comet, after the two guys who discovered it. Ten, uh, a thousand times larger than most other regular comets. So there's probably a lot of comets in that picture. You can't see them because they're so small. Science also discovered last year a previously unknown moon on Jupiter. I know you guys are like, whoa, that is nuts. Crazy. Science also discovered the closest black hole to Earth. It's here. Now, I've put a black circle on it just so you know it's a black hole. Um, and don't get too worried. There's a little, little bit of caution, uh, uh, anxiety in the room. It's 1,500 light years away, okay? So we're not going to get swallowed up by it soon. Maybe in 1,500 light years' time, but not anytime soon. There's also, science also discovered last year a a supermassive black hole. I'm going to put a picture of it up on the screen. Here it is. Okay. 
supermassive black hole. Uh, that's actually not a picture of it. That's just a blank screen. That's a picture of it there. It's in the middle of the Centaurus galaxy. It is 55 million times bigger than our sun. And now you're starting to get a little bit worried, right? I can sense, you know, the tension rising. It is more than 10 million light years away, so don't worry about it. You can sleep well tonight knowing that you're not going to get swallowed up by a supermassive black hole. But some of those discoveries are just crazy. And, and what's interesting is they reveal what people have actually always known. Two and a half thousand years before long-range telescopes were invented, David wrote this, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day they continue to speak. Night after night they make him known. And so I encourage you to look for God by being intellectually curious. Ask questions. Do some research. Look for the fingerprints of God and the complexity and the creativity of our natural world. And the second thing I'd encourage you to do is, is to learn. Loving God with all your mind is more than just discovering God's fingerprints in creation. It's discovering the essence of God's character. And I think the best way to do that is through the Bible. The ancient prophet Jeremiah, he recorded the words of God when God said this. This is what the Lord says. Don't let the wise boast in their wisdom, or the powerful boast in their power, or the rich boast in their riches. But those who wish to boast should boast in this alone, that they truly know me and understand that I am the Lord who demonstrates unfailing love and, I, and who brings justice and righteousness to the earth, and that I delight in these things. I, the Lord, have spoken. Now, obviously it's never going to be possible to fully understand everything about God. But I think getting to know him means learning his ways through his word. And when we do that, we can love him even more. And this is essentially how healthy human relationships work. The love between people grows through their knowledge of one another. So Dan and I have been married for almost 19 years. Almost 19 years. And in that time, we've learnt quite a lot about each other. We've learnt what our likes are, what our dislikes, what makes each other happy or sad, and, and very kind of nuances of each other's character over time. Now, if I said to Dana, I love you the first time I met her, which I didn't, by the way, and she most certainly did not say that to me, but if I said that to her, I love you the first time I met her, it would just be foolish of me, and it would be meaningless for her because I couldn't love her because I did not know her. But now, 19 years down the track, when I say I love her, it, it is, there are reasons behind that, and it is meaningful for Dana because it's a recognition of our relationship. We know each other. And I think the same is true for God. Getting to know God takes some time and effort, but it's honoring and it's meaningful to him. R.C. Sproul is a, an author and professor, and he put it like this. He said, the more I understand God with my mind, the more I love him with my mind. And so this week, I encourage you to take some time to get to know God by, by digging into his word. And this is going to probably be more than just like a quick skim read, you know, once or twice a week. You're going to have to really 
dig deep and really wrestle with the truth that's contained in these pages. And I appreciate that it is, is a hard book to get into. I struggle with it. There is, there is a layer of complicatedness and, and complexity, and sometimes things are just straight up confusing. But there is also resources available for us to explore the Bible in a really engaging way. And so if you want to just make a start on the alexbaptist.co.nz website, there's some resources. There's a tab there with resources. You will find reading plans. You'll find studies. You'll find articles. You'll find sermons. You'll find video clips. All these are, are there to help you dig a bit deeper into the Bible. And when you do that, you'll find, you'll find out that God actually has a lot to say about the world that we live in. If you dig deep enough, you'll discover God's perspective on, on all aspects of the human condition and experience. This is like, you know, the usual stuff, like money and sex, parenting, in-laws, singleness, work, health, politics. But if you dig a bit deeper, you'll find that God actually has stuff to say about other issues, like climate change, like war. Like migration, gender, poverty, decolonization, a whole bunch of stuff that our world is really going through. God has a lot to say about those global issues. And so loving God with our mind means, means learning and knowing and understanding what he thinks. And you might discover that that's not necessarily the, the Christian perspective on some things. That might not be the party line. Our world is really complex and there are some issues that are complicated, but God speaks into those. So I really encourage you to, to press into God's revealed word to understand his thoughts, his plans, his purposes, his ideas, so that you can love him with your mind. One of the great minds of the ancient world was a guy called Paul of Tarsus. And he reminded one of his students, a guy called Timothy, that God had revealed himself through his word. This is what he wrote. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true, and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. So if you want to love God with your mind, it's about looking, it's about learning, and it's also about living out the truth that he teaches. Because Jesus taught for transformation, which is which is quite different to the general modern approach to teaching. Uh, typically in the Western world, <clears throat> teaching is about the transfer of information. So the teacher pours information into the students just like water is poured into a cup and then the student shows what they've learned normally by a test or something. And, and you know this is true if you've ever worked in the education system, particularly secondary or tertiary, you know it's true because the question every student wants to know is, Will this be in the exam, basically? But Jesus' approach to teaching is quite different. He was not simply about pouring information or conveying content. Jesus taught to transform lives. And this is really the genius of Jesus. He sought to engage people's heads, their hearts, and their hands. The truth that he taught was meant to prompt people to action, to do something good with the knowledge that had been revealed. And so the first followers of Jesus picked up on this. They realized that loving God with their mind meant they had to know and to do something. I guess if we're honest, there is nothing worse than a know-it-all 
who does nothing, right? And Christians realized that the teachings of Jesus would have a direct impact on what they did. This is how Paul put it. If I have the gift of prophecy, and if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, but didn't love others, I would be nothing. And so that's why for the last 2,000 years, Christians have been at the forefront of social welfare and justice. Christians have established schools and universities with a freely offered formal education to boys and girls, men and women of all ages and stages. Christians have generously provided health care. They've established hospitals and clinics. They've used their knowledge to develop medicine and surgical techniques to bring help and the healing to people in need. Christians have been active in science and technology. Their inventions have improved our world. Christians have been active in art and literature, government and politics, human rights, social justice, business, sports. In fact, every facet of the human experience, Christians have worked to apply the teachings of Jesus in every corner of the world. They have tried to live out that transformation that Jesus brings. And I guess this is where we come in. We're part of that grand stream of history. If you have chosen to line up with Jesus, then he calls you to love God with all your might. That means looking for God's creativity. That means learning about God's character. That means living out God's commands, loving God with all our minds. So I'm just going to pause for a moment and invite you to reflect on where you're at at that track. What out of those kind of three do you really need to focus on? Do you need to cultivate a sense of curiosity and and wonder in our world? Do you need to dig a bit deeper into the Bible to really understand God's plans and purposes? Or do you need to roll up your sleeves and and live out the teachings of Jesus in everyday life? I'm just going to give you a moment quietly to reflect on that. I think that loving God with all our minds is, is possibly one of the most important things Christians can do. Because it shows that Christianity is not anti-intellectual. You don't have to throw out your brain and just have blind faith when you join with Jesus. In fact, the opposite is true. God loves it when we look for his truth. God loves it when we learn his truth. God loves it when we live out his truth in this world. And so friends, I just want to encourage you this week that wherever you are, whether you're at work, in one of those jobs, maybe you're at school, maybe you're at home, maybe you're balancing the books or writing a report or pruning or painting or planting or planning or packing, maybe you're a scientist or a surveyor or a student, teacher, tradie, uh, a tractor driver, a manager, a marketer, a doctor, an engineer, a retiree, wherever you are in all of that, You are called to love God with all your mind. And so the final advice I just want to leave us with is from Paul, which is really an echo of the teachings of Jesus. He put it like this, Finally, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Let's pray. God, we are are grateful 
for the minds that you've given us. You've given each of us a brain and you expect us to use it for your glory. So this week, we just want to look to you. We want to learn about you. We want to live for you. And we ask that you would give us opportunities to be curious about your creativity, to, to dig deeper into the Bible and, and to put our faith into action. And above all, we ask that we would think about the things that are true, honourable, pure, excellent and good. And as we do that, may we love you with all our minds. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks, Linda.